Good morning. Hey, man, you may be seated. Wow, was that a nice treat? That was completely unrehearsed. They just decided to stand up and sing. It was Jeannie's idea. Thank you, Jeannie. And thank you, Denise. Thank you, Carlos. That was just beautiful. It's great to be here with you in Grand Rapids. We have really looked forward to being with you, and especially to being with Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie, who have been our friends for more than 30 years. Isn't that something? We're really some of our dearest friends. Today, the young man that picked us up, I said, how old are you? He said, I'm 30 years old. I said, I've been coming to this church longer than you've been alive. <laughs> when we really have a long-term relationship with the Vanderklocks and with this church, we love you and we're thankful for you and for your support for all of these years. Wow, thank you so much. Good things are happening in Russia. Denise and I are proudly colluding with Russia. <laughs> proudly colluding. And uh, very grateful for what's happening there. Wonderful things are happening in Russia. Uh, don't believe everything you hear in the news. It is not true. Things are good. And God is moving in Russia. Right now we're having the World Cup. Have any of you noticed that? How would you like for two million visitors to come to Grand Rapids? That's how many tourists we now have in the city of Moscow. Two million. They are everywhere. People that are just nuts over soccer. And uh, Denise and I are happy that we're here and not there with all those two million tourists. But today I want you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to look at verse 8 and verse 9. And this is laying the foundation for what I'm going to continue in tonight's service. And Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for this time in the Word of God. We thank you for the privilege to speak the Word in this great church and in this pulpit. What an honor. And Holy Spirit, today we look to you as a great teacher. We ask you to communicate truth that will change our lives. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter is writing. And he says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Then the very first of verse 9 he says, whom resist steadfast in faith. And today I want us to begin in verse 8 with the word vigilant, where he says, be vigilant. The word vigilant in the Greek language of the New Testament is the Greek word Gregorio. If your name is Greg or Gregory, it's where your name comes from. Your name means to be vigilant. But in fact, it was a word of protection and a word of defense. The word Gregorio, here translated be vigilant, was only used when there was a hostile force trying to invade your premises, maybe with some sinister force that was trying to invade your business or your family or your finances, and in those moments you would be vigilant, the Greek word Gregorio, which means you were on your alert, you were unaware of what was happening, you put up your guard, it really carries the idea of building a barricade so that sinister force cannot find its way inside. The Apostle Paul carried this same idea in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, when he said to the Ephesians and to us, give no place to the devil. That word place is the Greek word topos. The word topos describes a concrete location 
It's where we get the phrase for a topographical map. It is a real geographical location, a real spot. You could even call it an entry point or a point by which you access territory. And when Paul says, give no place to the devil, he's really saying, close every door, seal every crack, give no geographical concrete location entry point by which the devil can find access into your life. And now with that same idea, Peter says, be vigilant, put up a barricade, do everything you can to stop the enemy from finding his way inside. And then he continues in verse 8. He says, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And the word devour is very key to this text. It is the Greek word pino. Now, when you read this verse in the King James Version, it talks about a roaring lion walking about. So we see the image of a lion seeking whom he may devour. We normally think that's a lion that's eating the meat of some carcass. But that's wrong. Because the Greek word for devour is the word peanut, which does not mean to meet the eat, it meet meat, it means to slurp up the juices. So the meat is already gone. This lion has so devoured the carcass of this animal, there's nothing left but juices. And now the lion is slurping up the remains. That is the word which is here translated devour. And by using this word, Peter tells us the devil's purpose is not just to do us damage, but to totally destroy us that he slurps up our juice until there's nothing left of us. It is the picture of total, complete consumption. Well, it's a lot easier to keep the devil out than to deal with him after he finds his way inside. Better to keep him out, to build a barricade so he never finds entrance into your life or into your family or into your business or into your health than for him to get into your life. And then you have to find a way to disentangle him and get him out of your relationships or get him out of your business. That's much more difficult. Many years ago, I took issue with Denise because Denise was always locking the door to our house and we live in the middle of the country. We live in Moscow, but we live just on the outskirts of the city in the middle of nowhere, a big field, a forest behind our house, no one near us. And Denise was all the time locking the door, locking the door. And I would say to her, why are you all the time locking the door? There's no one out here. And she would say, Rick, because it's our house and we need to lock the door. And I thought it was silly. And then one day, I was watching television, and then he said, Rick, you need to come to the front of the house. I came to the front of the house. She said, look through the people. And I looked through the people, and to my astonishment, standing in front of our door was a completely naked woman. A woman on drugs who had wandered from the forest behind our house through our backyard into our yard, and she was at our front door trying to get in our house. And at that moment, I was thankful Denise had locked the door. (laughs) Easier to keep the woman out. Just imagine if she had gotten into the house, then I would have had to deal with a naked woman in our house better to keep them out than to deal with them after they've gotten in. And if you look at most of our lives, 
if you look at most of your struggles, most of our struggles were preventable. Most relational problems were preventable. Most financial problems were preventable. If we had used our heads, if we had been wise, if we had been vigilant about our lives, we could have kept that attack on the outside. It would have never penetrated us. But because we were not vigilant, the devil found his way on the inside. And now when you come to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, in light of this, be vigilant. Gregorio, put up a barricade. Be alert. Be on your guard. No, he is trying to find his way on the inside, and his purpose is not just to victimize you, to slurp up everything that is left of you till there is nothing left. And that is why in verse 8 he says, whom resist. The word resist is the Greek word anthistomy, which means to put up an orderly, pre-planned defense. This is not in a haphazard moment saying, oh, it looks like we're under attack. We better do something. But this word resist describes someone so serious about protecting himself that he pre-plans his resistance. He builds a strategic defense so that enemy can never get on the inside. Now, I'm going to give you a true story from my life. What do you do? What do you do? If the enemy has got on the inside, how do you get him out? And sometimes you've got to take radical action. Once the devil has found entrance into your life or into your business or your marriage or your health or your children or your grandchildren, sometimes when he's gotten on the inside, you've got to do something radical to remove him. When we first began our ministry in the former Soviet Union, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and told me that we were to go on television. There had never been a regular Christian broadcast in the whole history of the former Soviet Union. It had never happened. And so we were literally breaking territory that no one had ever done before. I traveled to TV stations, talked to communist leaders, negotiated contracts. It was quite an amazing work of God. And we hired staff. And the staff we hired were the children of Pentecostal parents and Pentecostal grandparents their parents and their grandparents had gone to prison for their faith. Their parents and their grandparents had prayed for a day of freedom to come when the gospel could be preached, and now their kids and grandkids were working for us. And what were they doing? They were fulfilling their grandparents' and parents' prayers. They were working in the ministry publicly with no shame, no fear of retribution, answering mail, ministering to people, producing TV programs, doing books, publishing books, sending books, touching masses of people. And every morning we met together for prayer. And we would join hands and sing together and pray in tongues together. It was such a sweet time of unity and cooperation and such a spirit of faith that was among us. And we were literally inundated with response. Because no one had ever had a Christian TV program, no one knew how people would respond to a Christian TV program. So when I went on the air and said, if you write to me, I'll write you back. We did not anticipate 800,000 people were going to write us in 10 months. And within 10 months, we had 800,000 letters to answer. It was truly a tragedy. On one side, it was exciting. On the other side, it was a tragedy because I said I would write them back. And if I'm a man of my word, I've got to write them back. 
And before we ever purchased a computer, 800,000 letters had accumulated. Well, back in those days, just after the Soviet Union collapsed, there were no computers, literally no computers, none. There were no electronic cash registers. If you went to the store to shop and you went to pay your bill, the cashier used an abacus. Now, those of you that are older know what an abacus is. How many of you remember what is an abacus? Has those beads and you move those beads like that? I remember watching them work those abacus. It was like a sign and a wonder to me how they would move those things back and forth and then tell me what I owed. I would almost want to tell them, please do it again. It was so amazing to see how they would work that abacus that there were no cash registers, nothing electronic of any kind. And our ministry was the first organization in our republic to be fully outfitted with computers. And oh, we were so excited. We had Macintosh computers, didn't buy them there. We had to transport them from the other part of the world. But we had Macintosh computers. People were talking about our computers. Wow, an organization really has computers. And finally, we were making headway on answering 800,000 letters that had accumulated. And one day I got a phone call to come to the office very urgently, early in the morning. And when I came into the office, our beautiful computers were destroyed. Someone had accessed our office during the night with a hammer and with very long spikes from the local railroad tracks. And they had bashed the screens of all the computers, and then they'd taken those big spikes, and they had nailed them through the keyboards of every single computer. Destroyed them, destroyed them, the precious computers that we were using to answer the mail. And in the midst of every one of those spikes, there was a note. And when we read the note, it was a death threat to the person operating that computer. If you continue to come here and continue to work at this computer, if you continue to work in this ministry, you will die. I went to the next computer in the next office. It was the same. I went to the next computers in the next office. It was the same. Death threats, spikes, nails, computers completely destroyed. And everywhere I turned, death threats leveled against our precious team. And at that time, we had a lot of Americans on our staff who had 27 children. They needed education, so we formed a school for American English-speaking children. And one day, all of our kids were at school, including our children. And at lunch, all the kids opened their lunch pails to eat their food. And when they opened their lunch pails, in every single lunch pail, there was a death threat. We are going to kill your parents. And then it described in detail how the parents were going to be killed. Well, that's not a great thing for your children to experience when they go to school. Then, one day we were at church worshiping, and during the middle of worship, the church was just getting started. The church was just booming with the power of God. Someone let out a scream, and when they came to church, there was a death threat in their chair at church saying if they continued to come to this church, they would be murdered. And then, in addition to all the death threats... Whoever the culprit was, this sinister force 
began to go from home to home of our staff when they were not home, including our home. For example, we came home, and when we walked in the house, we could see someone had been in the house. We walked into the kitchen, and my goodness, every dish we had had been pushed out of our cabinet onto the floor. The floor was covered with fragments of dishes, and this was at a moment when there was a deficit of everything, you couldn't buy dishes, there were no products in the store, there was nothing we could buy to replace these broken dishes. It was tragic. Denise and I began to look around the house to see where else they had been and what else they had done. And when we opened our closet, we saw that they had taken buckets of white paint and had filled all of our shoes with white paint at a time when there were no shoes to purchase. There were no shoes. We thought that was it. That's bad enough. Then finally, when it was time to go to bed that night, Denise and I pulled the sheets back on the bed and discovered whoever the person was had also taken white paint, poured it all over our bed, and then they are so cruel, they remade the bed so that we didn't know the bed had been destroyed until it was time to go to bed, and our bed was completely covered. White paint destroyed all of the linens, everything that had been made, including things that had been made by Denise's mother. Just just destruction. And this attack continued 10 months, 10 months. Death threats regularly being written, left at very critical places where people would find it, describing how they're going to be murdered, what it's going to be, how horrible the slaughter will be. 10 months of this. The majority of it happening in our office. And our team began to be suspicious, of course. It was obvious it was somebody on the inside. This was somebody on the inside that had access to all of us. They knew when we came, when we went. They knew when the office would be empty. This was somebody that had access. Now when we met together with prayer in the mornings, rather than have a sweet spirit of cooperation and unity, people were afraid to take the hand of the person next to them because everyone was wondering, is this the culprit? Is this the culprit? I wonder if this is the one. And everyone was filled with suspicion. And by the end of the 10 months, literally every person on that team had been to me privately to say, I think I figured out who it is among us that is doing this. And by the time the 10 months were finished, every single on the team had been privately accused by somebody else. It was horrible. Suspicion. Suspicion is a horrible thing. It's crippling. It's debilitating. You're afraid to trust. You're afraid to act where suspicion is in operation. What in the world were we going to do? How are we going to end this? How were we going to find out who was the culprit that was doing all this? The enemy was on the inside. This was an inside job. Well, about a year earlier, the local KGB had come to me. And everything was changing. Economies were changing. Even currency was changing. Everything was changing. And the local KGB wanted new costumes. They wanted new uniforms, and they didn't have any money. So they said to me, Mr. Renner, would you be a benefactor for us? And will you please pay for the local KGB to have new uniforms? Well, I had never dreamed in my life that I would be buying uniforms for the KGB. 
But I felt I was to do that. So Denise and I put up the money and we purchased the uniforms for the local KGB. And now when we saw the local KGB and the police walking on the street in beautiful new uniforms, they were all dressed in clothing purchased by Rick Renner Ministries. And they never forgot that. And I didn't forget it. So finally, at the end of this 10 months, I decided it's time for us to call the KGB. And I called the KGB. Now, I know that people freak out about the KGB, but the KGB are people too. Even today, members of the KGB attend my church in Moscow. I have a former colonel with the KGB who regularly attends my church, critiques all my sermons, loves the Bible, loves doctrine. I have a whole family that are a member of the KGBs. They sit on the second row of service, every single church service. They come to me afterwards. They kiss me. They love me. They call me pastor. We have another woman in our church who's a member of the KGB. They need pastors too. But I decided to call the KGB, ask for their help. Told them what had happened. Told them about all the death threats. Said, I helped you, now I need you to help me. They said, we'll help you and here's what we want you to do. Collect all the death threats. Do you still have all the death threats? We had them all, I had saved them all. We had a whole stack of death threats. Send us all the death threats. We'll turn them over to the handwriting analysis department. We'll analyze the handwriting. And then we'll take it from there. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to call a staff meeting. And don't tell your staff that we're coming. So I called all the team together. There were about 50 of us that day. We sat in the back room of the office. Everyone was at desks. And I said, well, today we're going to have a surprise speaker, <laughs> somebody that you would never anticipate. We have a guest that's going to be with us today. Just stay here. I'll be back in a moment. I went to the front of the office, answered the door, let in the KGB, who was wearing one of the costumes that we had paid for. He walked with me down the hallway to the end of the office. And when he walked in the door, my staff, whose parents and grandparents had been persecuted, by the KGB, their eyes were like this. Their mouths fell open as they saw a pastor cooperating with the KGB. And this man from the KGB then distributed paper to everyone in the room with pencils. He said, now I'm here to help, and I want you to do what I say. He said, I'm going to dictate, and everyone in this room is to write. So Denise and I are sitting there watching this take place. Everybody takes their pen and pencil in their hand, their piece of paper, and he begins to dictate, I am going to kill you. I said, honey, now all 50 people are writing death threats. And they're all writing, I'm going to kill you. Here is how I'm going to kill you. Here is how I'm going to kill you. And then he begins to describe in vivid detail how he's going to murder. Oh, they're all writing, I'm going to murder you like this. It's going to feel like this. I'm going to kill your parents. I'm going to tell you, it was a shocking thing to see my whole staff writing death threats. Then he said, now in case you've tried to disguise your handwriting, turn the paper over and put the pencil in the other hand. And he had them do it again. <laughs> then he collected all the pieces of paper, 
He said, Rick, meet me outside. So I walked outside. He said, within three days, I'll tell you who wrote all the original notes. We'll analyze all these papers. I will tell you 100% who wrote the original notes. Three days later, I got a phone call. He said, this is the person. And when he told us who it was, my goodness. It wasn't just a staff member. It was a key, strategic staff member. And when he told me who it was, suddenly I could see it. It was very clear to me. This was, in fact, the person. A person responsible for 10 months of suspicion, 10 months of fear, 10 months of destruction, 10 months. You say, well, what did you do with that person? Well, I did not do what I wanted to do. I wanted to take retribution against that person. I wanted to send that person to prison. And in fact, I had every right. And in that republic, that person could have gone to prison for what took place. And I was ready to prosecute. I was ready to move forward. I was ready to demand reimbursement for all the destruction. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And the Holy Spirit said, this is obviously a mentally sick person. And it's true. This was real mental sickness. I mean, it was just horrible, twisted mental sickness. The Holy Spirit said, do you want to prosecute a mentally ill person? Or would you like to be a part of healing that person? And I honestly said, I'd like to be a part of prosecuting that person. I wasn't interested in healing that person. But I understood. You know, sometimes when God asks you a question, it really confronts you about yourself. And now I had a choice. I could prosecute or I could heal. And the Lord challenged me to never reveal the name of that person. To simply say that we had the information, we had the answers, and the attack stopped because the person knew they had been caught. It stopped instantly. And the Lord challenged me to be a part of the healing process, to bring that person into a state of mental wholeness. And I have to tell you the truth. It was really hard for me and Denise. It was hard on our marriage because we didn't trust this person, but the Lord was telling us to be a part of this person's healing. It was very, very difficult for us to be a part of the healing process. But in healing that person, God brought us to a higher level that we had never been to before. And to this day, no one has ever known the identity of that person except me and Denise. But it stopped the attack. We finally wised up. We realized we've got to take action. We can't just hope this is going to end. It's not ending. It's just continuing and continuing and continuing. If we're going to bring this thing to a grinding halt, we've got to do something radical to stop it, to remove this culprit from our midst. We can't be haphazard or just hope it gets better. We've got to do something to stop this. And that is precisely what Peter says. 
In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be vigilant, put up your guard, be on your red alert, know this, build a barricade because the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. That word devour, the Greek word pino, to slurp up, it really means to liquidate, to leave insolvent, flat broke, take everything you've got till there's nothing left. That is his objective. And then in verse 9, the command, whom resist? It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Again, the word resist, the Greek word enthystomy, a pre-planned orderly defense. This is not just hoping you'll repel him. It is constructing your life, constructing your relationships, constructing your business, constructing your health, doing everything you can to proactively make sure that enemy has lost his access. And then Peter says in verse 9, whom resists steadfast. The word steadfast, the Greek word stereos. The Greek word stereos means to reinforce yourself, to reinforce yourself. You could translate it to bolster. A little translation is strategically form a defense and reinforce yourself in faith to keep this devil on the outside. Now, in tonight's service, I'm going to give you seven concrete, real quick steps you can take to reinforce yourself to stop the devil from finding access. If the devil is regularly finding his way into your conversation. If the devil's finding his way habitually into your marriage, into your finances, into your kids, taking your peace, you can do something to stop it. And really, it's not so difficult if you know the steps. I just want to share quickly from John 10, verse 10. How many of you know John 10? 10. The thief comes, what? But to steal, to kill, and... To destroy. I'm going to really touch on this verse tonight. You do not want to miss it. You're going to hear a brand new version of this verse. But when Jesus says the thief comes, huh, no one knew the devil better than Jesus. Jesus knew the devil when he was Lucifer. He knew the devil before he was the devil. Jesus had known the devil from the very beginning of time. If anybody could speak with authority about what the devil was like, it was Jesus. And in this verse, Jesus calls him a Thief. The Greek word kleptes, the word kleptes describes a bandit, a pickpocket, a scam artist, and in fact, it's where we get the term for a kleptomaniac, the Greek word kleptes. Jesus is saying, let me tell you about the devil. He can't control himself. It is his nature to steal. He is a thief. He is a pickpocket. The word klepto, the thief comes to steal, that word klepto describes one who steals so carefully that he walks away with your goods and you don't even know that he's had his hands in your pocket. He cleans you out. Well, he was a thief from the beginning, from the very beginning. He said, I want the throne of God. He tried to take it. From the very beginning, he said, I want the glory of God. He tried to take it. I want the sides of the north. He wanted the position of God. And when he was kicked out of heaven, it didn't change him. 
Then he wanted Adam's position. He wanted Adam's authority. It really didn't matter what it was. He just wants it because he is a kleptomaniac. Recently, I saw a TV interview with a woman in the United States who is about 90 years old, and she has been a kleptomaniac for more than 60 years. And she was just arrested for stealing jewelry in a jewelry store. About 90 years old. She is so emphasis, uh, infamous in the jewelry world that when you go to jewelry stores, very often they will have pictures of her posted because she is famous for 60 years coming into jewelry stores, walking out of jewelry stores with jewelry that she did not purchase. She is just a kleptomaniac. And when they recently arrested her, they said, are you now going to stop stealing? She said, of course not. It's my nature. I thought of the words of Jesus. The thief, kleptes, it's his nature. He can't restrain himself. He's just a thief. Everything in him is a thief. It's really not even so much that he wants to do damage to you. He just wants whatever you have. If you have peace, he wants your peace. If you have health, he wants your health. If you've got a marriage, he wants your marriage. If you've got grandkids, he wants your grandkids. If you've got blessing, he wants your blessing. If you've got money, he wants your money. He is just a kleptomaniac. Jesus said that. Kleptes. Well, if you knew today, if you knew today, right now, that in the evening hours later today, a thief would definitely come to your home to do you damage, to hurt your family, to kill your dog, to hurt your house, what would you do? Well, we'll see what happens. Well, we'll see if he really shows up. Maybe he will, maybe he won't. Well, we'll figure out what to do when he gets here. No, that's not what you do. You'd put bars on the windows. You'd turn on an alarm system. You'd tell the police to be nearby to watch what is taking place. You would take precautions, or like Peter says, you would be Vigilant. Vigilant. Well, the truth is we have more authority than the devil. We do. We have more power than the devil. We have the blood of Jesus. We have the word of God. This teaching is not intended to scare anybody. We are superior to him. But he is a kleptomaniac. He is a thief. His desire is to wiggle his way into your business and walk away having cleaned you out. If you know that, then it's time for you to be vigilant. And according to verse 9, time for you to learn how to construct yourself, construct your affairs, to build an organized resistance that he cannot penetrate, to reinforce yourself, to make sure he stays out of your affairs. That's what I'm going to talk about tonight. But I want you to know, friends, 
Jesus Christ will give you the power to drive him back across the line. God may require you to take radical steps that you can get him out of your business. You can. I want you to put your hand on your heart. I want to pray for you right now. Father, we thank you in the name of Jesus for the word of God. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit that is operative in us. We thank you that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. We thank you that we have the mind of Christ, and Lord, you show us how to construct ourselves so that we become impenetrable. We thank you for this, Father. Give us wisdom to drive him back across the line. And while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, if you are here this morning and you've never repented of your sin, you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never called him the Lord of your life, this is your moment. This is your moment. When you can be released from the captivity of sin and from the bondage of the devil and be loosed, your life be changed, literally a brand new beginning. And I want to lead you in a prayer right now, if that's you. All over this room, just seated where you are, no one getting up. If that is you today, pray this with me. God, I give my life to you. I turn from myself. I turn to you. I ask you to take me to be the Lord of my life. And I will serve you the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen.